everybody. Welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I'm coming at you with a brand new series, the Electro Series. And of course, I had to start it off strong with The Prodigy. Um, Some of you probably may or may not consider them to be Electro. I think they certainly fall under this category, even though they fall under kind of that rave, techno, kind of rock, and they kind of follow a lot of different genres. But I think under the umbrella term of electro, I think they follow in there pretty nicely. So this one, I I already know right now, this is going to be a long episode. This could be my longest episode to date because I have 12 pages of notes that I'm going to read out to you right now. I went in on this one because I really, really love The Prodigy. I've been getting into them in the last um, year. And they're just so amazing that I have to tell you guys the full story. So you're in for a treat if you, for some reason, have not heard about The Prodigy. I think you'll be greatly surprised after this episode. And my hope is that you go and listen to their music wherever you want, YouTube, Spotify, you know, Apple Music, wherever you want to listen to their music, because I'm telling you, you will not be disappointed. So I'm just going to shut up and get right into it because this is going to be a long one. I've got my brew here because I know my voice is going to die probably halfway through this episode. So bear with me here. But let's get started by talking about one of the founding members of The Prodigy, Keith Flint. So Keith was born September 17th, 1969 in Redbridge, London. His childhood was an unhappy one, and he fought with his parents a lot. Specifically, his father. He seemed to have a really tumultuous relationship with his father. He attended Boswell School in Kelmsford and moved to Braintree, Essex after leaving this school. So Essex is where this whole story really takes place. So yeah, Essex kind of was part of that 90s hip-hop culture. Um, They were also really big into the rave scene, into the dance scene, but hip-hop was really taking over Essex, and Keith was one of these people that was really into um, hip-hop. Liam was as well. So Keith was having a hard time at school. He was described as a bright boy with dyslexia, and he was disruptive in class. He was um, expelled from school at age 15. I've heard reports that he was kicked out of school, he was taken out by his father, Um, but either way, he left school at 15, and from that point on, he was kind of waffling on. He wasn't really sure what he wanted to do with his life. He just knew that he was different than everyone else, and his parents were a bit uptight. They were kind of straight, if you will. And he was a bit alternative. He was very, really um, different than I think what maybe they were expecting of boys to be back then. So he rebelled a lot. And this really um, culminated, I suppose, if you will, in the bad relationship with his father because his father was physically abusive, really violent towards Keith, and he would ridicule him growing up because I would assume that he was so different, like he was getting all these piercings and tattoos, and he was into all this different music, he was rebelling in school, Um, so it was just not a great environment to live in. 
Keith went on to say in a 2015 interview that Liam actually helped save his life and he helped him get back in touch with his estranged family at that point in time. Um, When Keith went actually to go meet with his father around this time, his father had obviously let him down yet again. And so this just was (laughs) really not a good situation. Like he left his family. He wasn't talking to them for a long time. Liam helped him get back in touch with his family and then he just got disappointed. So Keith finally, for the last time, rang up his father after that meeting and he said, you'll never see from me again. You'll never hear me again. Like I'm done. And uh, that was that was the end of that relationship. So Keith, as a teen and in his early 20s, he worked as a roofer and a couple of other odd jobs like a butcher and something called an investigative driller that seems kind of like it would be within construction. It sounds interesting. Um, he just worked a couple of odd jobs. Obviously, he didn't have like a degree or certificate, whatever, at school. So he would just get whatever odd job he could. So at this point, again, he was kind of waffling around. He didn't really have a place to fit in, but he was really embracing the acid house music scene of the 80s. Keith was also a big fan of The Jam and English mod revival punk band Susie Sue and The Banshees. So at some point here in his late teens, he quit all of these jobs and he just went to go travel the world. There wasn't really a specific place in mind. I think he just wanted to get out and branch out and find a place that he could escape to because his home was not his home. And eventually when he returned back home to the UK in 1989, that's when he met Liam. And so now we're going to talk about the prodigy himself, Liam Howlett. He's a really cool character. I really admire his brain. I admire the way he thinks about things. He's a really intelligent man, and he is such a genius, a musical genius. So let's dive right into the early years of Liam Howlett. Liam was born August 21st, 1971 in Braintree, Essex, London. He was trained in classical piano as a child, and he was apparently a very quick learner. At age 14, he began mixing his own songs by recording tunes that he picked up from the radio using the pause button on his cassette player. By age 15, he had worked through his school holiday break so he could buy some mixers. For the next year, about, he would mostly stay inside his bedroom, and he taught himself how to use all of this equipment and scratching records and making beats. Like, he was teaching himself how to DJ, how to mix, how to sample things. Like, he was really, really diving deep when, honestly, I can't really think of an earlier example of sampling before him in a way. I I can't really, used in this kind of way, that's so different when along the way in The Prodigy, he mixes hip-hop and dance and big beats with rock and metal. Like, that, I think, truly has never been done before. I think The Prodigy were the first to do that. I think it just came very intuitively to him. I know that he was a quick learner, so I think with one or two tries, this just became so natural to him as if breathing is so natural and sleeping is so natural, like 
making music to him was just so natural. I think he was born with it. I think he was born with that musical gene. Some of us aren't gifted like that. I know I'm not. Um, so Liam, I think, is definitely one of those gifted people. Um, also, at this time, he bought some turntables, and again, he would just teach himself how to do all of these different things. He cites that some of his early influences were the Sex Pistols, Grandmaster Flash, and the Specials. Other cited influences were the song Clear by Cybertron and bands like The Bomb Squad, Rage Against the Machine, and Public Enemy. And like I mentioned, Liam was heavily influenced by hip-hop first. That was where he was gravitated towards. He was so infatuated with the hip-hop culture um, and everything that Essex had to offer in terms of that kind of dance movement. He attended Alec Hunter High School in Braintree, and this is where he formed a group with a couple of his friends that were a breakdancing crew. They were called the Pure City Breakers. At this point, he was mixing the breakdancing and the hip-hop and learning how to DJ. He took his DJing skills to a club, and he DJed in his first band called Cut to Kill, which was a hip-hop group. After a fight at a show, he eventually left this group, and he started to write his own music. Liam has said that after seeing bands like Enjoy, Adamansky, and Guru Josh on stage, that this inspired him particularly to make his own music. He said, if they can do it, I can do it. He said that he went to his first rave in 1989 and studied the music. He would go to these raves, he would watch how they would do it on stage, he would see the people's reactions to it, he would just absorb everything. And he got absorbed into the culture as well. It wasn't just to go to these raves to study. He actually enjoyed everything that was happening. So when he got home, he could practice on his keyboard what he had seen at these raves. So that's really smart. He was observing and he was learning and he was interpreting how to do it on his own. He said, okay, they can do it. How can I do it? And then also, how can I improve upon it? So now we're going to talk about the formation of The Prodigy, how it all came together. So after Liam decided that he was going to go start his music career, he started DJing at a club in Braintree called The Barn. And when Keith got back home from his traveling in 1989, he stumbled upon Liam one day at the club and he was impressed by his DJing skills, and the two of them got to talking, and they bonded over their shared interest in music. And so Keith was like, hey, Liam, I would love to have a cassette tape of those songs that you were playing tonight. You know, could you make me one, and then, you know, could you give it to me, please? And Liam was like, okay. So on one side of the tape, he put a couple of those mixes that he made, and then on the back, he would put his own music on there, some of his own stuff. And so Liam agreed. He gave this cassette tape to Keith, and it was kind of history from there. Liam had written the word prodigy on the spine of the tape, and it was said that he thought of this name prodigy because his Moog Prodigy analog synthesizer had that name, and he was really taken by the word prodigy. And also, he liked how the word prodigy sounded, and he decided to use that name from then on, that he was the prodigy. 
So when Keith heard this tape, he just absolutely loved it so much. And he said, Liam, you need to make this music and you need to do it on stage. And Keith said, if you ever need hype men or dancers for your show, that not only will I do it, but my friend Leroy Thornhill, who is also a dancer and a keyboardist, we would help you. And so that's kind of where it became from then. It was Liam and it was Leroy and it was Keith. The three of them all were coming together. I wanted to mention this quote from Liam that he said in 1997 about the name of the prodigy. It was B-boy largeness, I guess, in a way. Like Grandmaster Flash had a grand name, larging himself up with his name. When I first thought of the name, obviously I didn't consider it could be for people. It was just me, faceless, in my bedroom, writing music. The prodigy. And so that's where it came from. So after the three of them decided that they would form a group together, they brought in MC and singer Maxim. He was then known as Maxim Reality. And they also brought in a female dancer and singer named Sharky, who was also a friend of Keith's. And so this whole lineup became the prodigy as we know it. The band's first ever live performance as a collective was at the Four Aces Club in Dalston, London in 1990. So now that Liam was in a group that he was actually passionate about, he started to write, produce, and mix a 10-track demo tape on a Roland W30 sampling workstation keyboard. So as he was making this demo tape, he asked Tam Tam Records if they were interested in a record deal, but they declined. So he went to XL Recordings and they agreed to meet with the Prodigy and listen to the tape and they signed them right away onto a four single contract. So in February 1991, the band released their first EP called What Evil Lurks. It was on a 12-inch record, and it featured an extended version of the song by the same name, and it had Everybody's in the Place, which is one of their most popular tunes, and it sold about seven to 8,000 copies, and it was a massive underground hit, so this was just their first kind of splash into the underground rave dance music culture. Now, this is where it would take a turn, and they weren't expecting this at all. In August 1991, they released their first single, Charlie, and it sampled dialogue from a UK public information program for children in the 70s called Charlie Says. And this is really the first, I think anyway, the first well-known example in rave and dance acid house culture that samples movies, that samples TV, that samples other things aside from just music. It sampled something outside of its genre, and this was really different. So it became a massive hit with the rave culture in clubs at the time, and it reached number three on the UK singles chart. But with this fame of the Charlie song, it also brought them a lot of negative publicity from the critics, and it also brought about a lot of copycats. So a couple of examples of this kind of copycatting is A Trip to Trump Town by Urban Hype, Sesame Street by Smarties, and those are just two examples. But both songs were also hits, but not with the music critics. 
and music critics called this kind of music kitty rave and toy town techno. The band was actually unsuccessfully sued for the use of the Charlie sample on the grounds of plagiarism. So that's interesting. I guess someone wanted to cash in. Liam said that most of the money that he got from the song went right back into building up his equipment and his home studio. So it didn't go unnoticed. He took some of that money and it went right back into the music station. Their second single was Everybody's in the Place, and this was released in December 1991. It reached number two on the UK singles chart, and it actually beat out a re-release of Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody following the death of Freddie Mercury. So there you go. Not much to say there. That's pretty interesting. So in the following year, September 28th, 1992, they released their debut album, Experience. And this was produced entirely by Liam. No one else helped him on this one. He just did it all himself, which is quite a feat, to be honest, to do it all yourself. That's Jedi Mastery. So the idea of making this album came from XL Records, and Liam wanted to produce a rave concept album inspired by Pink Floyd, but he quickly abandoned the idea, thinking that it would ultimately limit his creativity. I can understand. I mean, a concept album is really niche anyway. I think limiting yourself to just that concept wouldn't be the best thing because you want to expand your mind and see where the limit is. Um, So it's nice that even though he had that initial idea that he went against that and he just said, fuck it, I'll do whatever I want to do. So the album went to number 12 in the UK album charts, and it was certified platinum for selling over 300,000 copies. Experience became a massive hit with the British rave culture scene. Five singles came from this album, Charlie, Everybody's in the Place, Fire, Jericho, Out of Space, and Wind It Up, Rewound. So kind of getting back to sampling, The Prodigy never really thought twice about copyright issues when it came to sampling before they got on a record deal and they were doing this big time. Obviously, why would you be concerned? You're you're a one-man person in your bedroom sampling a couple of music pieces that probably no one's really heard of before. Why would you worry about it? But now that they were a big band and they were part of a record company, they had to figure that out. So XL, their record label, sorted out all of the copyright issues for them. So whatever they wanted to use, they would obviously have to ask permission from the original people. So for example, the spoken word intro in Fire Jericho cost the band about £3,000 to use that sample from the crazy world of Arthur Brown track. So that's just one example that they paid £3,000 for that intro. Can you imagine how much they have to pay per song? That's nuts. After the success of Experience, the band wanted to distance themselves from that kitty rave reputation that was put on them because of Charlie. They wanted to show that they were to be taken seriously. And this really comes into play with their next album. In 1993, Liam released a white label album anonymously. It only had the title Earthbound 1 on it, so he put it out anonymously. He didn't say that this was by him. It was kind of a test, and I think it passed the test. 
He made the song as a response to the criticisms that the prodigy had sold out and that they had become too commercial. Its sound won actually a lot of approval from the underground rave scene, but when the DJs and the ravers found out that the tune was written by Liam, they shunned it completely. So it's pretty funny. That's a really interesting test that he played on them. I think it worked in his favor. So this tune that he put out anonymously was officially released as the song One Love Later in 1993, and it went to number eight in the charts. So now the band is expanding a lot, and they're taking a step back from that rave culture, and they're starting to become a little uh, jilted, as the title of their album is called Music for the Jilted Generation they're starting to kind of uh, distance themselves from the rave scene and they're starting to not like what it stands for anymore. And this is where the shift comes in with their sound in particular. So in 1994, they went on to record their second album, Music for the Jilted Generation. So this album and in particular the song Their Law on this album was a response to the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act of 1994 that criminalized rave and rave culture and underground rave parties. So the UK government was taking a crackdown on rave culture, and this was a direct response to rave culture in itself, but also the government response to it as well. And so that's where their law comes into play. But this whole album is really a fuck you to the UK government to say, you can't stop us from living the life that we want to live in this music culture. So a lot of the samples on Jilted Generation were taken from and inspired by films. The song Full Throttle has a sample that plays in reverse from the original Star Wars movie. Skyline used a sample from a sound effect from an episode of The X-Files, and The Heat used a sample from Poltergeist 3. Also, the song No Good, Start the Dance samples the song You're No Good For Me by Kelly Charles. So there's a whole wide array of samples that they took from music, from film. What was interesting was Liam wasn't sure at first about whether to use that You're No Good For Me sample because he thought that it was too pop for his taste, which is interesting because that's the whole premise for the song. And he has said before that if he were to ask permission for a sample from the artist and they were to say no, that instead of trying to create it himself or to try to build something else out of that concept, he would just scrap the song entirely. It's interesting that he initially was not sure about using it, but he used it, and I think it's one of their most popular tunes that they've ever done. Another song that is very popular is called Poison, and this was one of the first times that Maxim gave vocals to any Prodigy song on their albums before. He wanted to do more than just MC and be the hype person, so he really wanted to try singing. And one day in the studio, him and Liam were just messing around with the vocals, and Liam allowed Maxim to branch out into performing the songs instead of just being the MC. So now Maxim is playing a much bigger role. 
So when Liam was in the final phase of production, he realized a problem. All of the tracks that he wanted and planned for the album wouldn't fit onto a CD. So One Love was edited down to 3 minutes and 53 seconds. The heat was slightly cut down as well, and a track called We Eat Rhythm was left out initially, but it was later released on a free cassette in Select Magazine in October 1994, entitled Select Future Tracks. The really, really cool artwork for the album was designed by Stuart Haygarth, and Les Edwards designed the inner sleeve work. The artwork was in reference to the rave culture versus the political culture at the time. And I have to say, it's a really jarring image. It's something that still gives me the creeps when I look at it. Um, but I think that was the point of the cover. So, but yeah, it still gives me the creeps when I look at it. But music for The Jilted Generation was released in July 1994. And it went to number one in the UK album charts, and it received really positive reviews from critics and fans. So as another element to stepping away from their more traditional rave roots, they promoted the album in a more traditional sense of going on tours in pubs and club venues, which, of course, is not how a rave act or a dance hip-hop act would go at the time. So they were seriously taking a kind of hard left at being more influenced and keeping in blending rock and roll elements and the hip-hop dance big beat kind of thing that they were doing. So, and that's what I'm talking about as well. Like the album really added elements of that electro, industrial, big beat, rock and roll heavy sound that is so widely used on this album. And that kind of style will definitely be throughout most of their follow-up albums. No Tours and The Day Is My Enemy 100% are, I think, their two really dark albums in terms of the theme and the sound. This was the start of that transition 100%. It's clear that this album leaned more on the heavier and grittier side, as it was what Liam wanted for the band as, again, that direct response to the rave culture that they were kind of not wanting to be in anymore. The UK was evolving musically as well. This was 1994. You're now having the Britpop stuff going on. You're having that grunge influence from America coming over into the UK. So it's all kind of coming together. And this is what separates the Prodigy from other acts that sound kind of like them or that are in the same genre as they are. They really took it a step further and they really ensured that by going on this heavier rock side that they were staying relevant and that they weren't going to kill the reputation of the band. So they made the smart choice of moving forward. Around this time of the album's release, they were starting to form a new crowd of fans. Not just the fans from the dance and the rave scene, but they were also getting the rockers and the punk fans as well. Um, Liam was taking massive inspiration from rock music at this time to implement into the album. Like I said before, Rage Against the Machine was 100% one of those bands that made a huge impact 
on him and he was just going for it. Um, he said, okay, yeah, I'm taking this because Rage Against the Machine too, they blend hip hop and heavy metal together. And so you have those two things that Liam is really keen on. And of course he would take influence from them. Um, but something that I thought was really cool that I didn't know about before was on Voodoo People, the track Voodoo People, they sampled the guitar part from Nirvana's Very Ape song from their In Utero album. I heard that Liam said he wasn't fully into the grunge scene at the time, but Nirvana was a band that he really, really enjoyed a lot. Um, Very Ape was a tune that he liked by them, and um, Territorial Pissings was another one. And he did sample... Smells Like Teen Spirit. I forget in what tune. Oh, you know what? I think that was for a B-side to Poison. There's a song that they did called Rap Poison. I'm just remembering this now. And in that song, they use Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit. So that's really interesting too. So that must have means, or that must have meant, English, that they had to get permission from Nirvana. Wow, that's really cool, like the two of them coming together. That's really interesting. I'm just literally thinking of this right now. Um, so yeah, that's just one example of the sampling on music for the Jilted Generation. And a quote from Liam on the change in the music here is such. I'd become bored of the rave scene. It had become something so different to what it had been four years earlier. I remember hearing Rage Against the Machine and The Chronic by Dr. Dre while on tour in America and thinking, I want some of that raw energy. So I came home and started writing with that idea in my head. I was drawing from a real mix of influences. And another quote from Liam on this album is such. That record was a reaction to everything that was going on around us, even in the jungle scene. The tempo was going up and up, and so I thought, fuck that, we'll go down and rewrote Poison, which was a hip-hop track. So he was really actively and aggressively going against the grain of what bands in their genre were doing. He was really, and that's what he is. He's a pioneer and he is a prodigy. That's what makes him so talented, and that's what makes the prodigy stand the test of time now is how he's able to bend with the ebb and flow of the music and take all of these different inspirations and blend them together to make something so unique that really honestly was never heard of before. So as I was researching this band, I came across an article that I thought was really, really interesting. Um, the article was about Liam and 10 records that he listened to at the time of writing music for the Jilted Generation that helped shape the Prodigy sound. And I thought this is perfect because I really love hearing what other artists are listening to and what they're influenced by. And so I just wanted to share the songs that he said that he loved and got inspiration from for this album. So the songs are The Beastie Boys, So What You Want, Rage Against the Machine, Bomb Track, Ennio Morricone, The Ecstasy of Gold, Can Hallelujah, The Future Sound of London, Papua New Guinea, Public Enemy, Welcome to the Terror Dome, 
the entirety of the Chronic album by Dr. Dre. He couldn't just pick one tune. He picked the whole album. The Rolling Stones' 2000 Light Years From Home. Nirvana's Territorial Pissings, which I mentioned before. And Bernard Purdy's Good Livin'. So those were his 10 songs. And if you want to listen to them, absolutely go ahead. I listened to them just to get an idea of the influence. And I can 1000% hear a bit of Prodigy in those songs. And I could pick out, oh, he would probably pick out this portion of the song to use and get inspiration from. It was really, really interesting to get into his mind with that. So I just thought that was a really cool thing for me to input into this episode. So getting back to the album, music for the Jilted Generation was later described as a complex, powerful record that propelled dance music into stadiums with rock and roll swagger. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty accurate. The album was nominated for a Mercury Music Prize, although Liam had reaffirmed his dedication to making the prodigy a hardcore dance band, commercially successful, but without compromise. And that is totally the ethos that the Prodigy embodies for sure. They turned down media exposure that would have made them a lot bigger, and they actively turned down a chance to be on the top of the pops and other TV shows, wherein other bands would have taken the chance because they wanted that exposure. But they really didn't want that mainstream exposure. And actually, that's never been the goal for The Prodigy. The Prodigy has always been a band that likes to stay true to themselves and they don't give a fuck about the media and what they have to say and they don't care about the fanciful stuff of like interviews or um, promoting themselves in a certain kind of way. They really go against the grain. And so that's one of the things I like about them too because when you see The Prodigy, I think a lot of normal everyday people can really relate to them. And they're kind of an everyday person's band, if that makes sense. They're like, they're like a band for the everyday person. In the following years, their music videos received a lot of support and mainstream attention by MTV Europe, which did help boost their popularity. Following the international success of Jilted Generation, the band started to change their lineup slightly, by adding guitarist Jim Davies in 1995, and he appeared in tracks Their Law, Break and Enter 95, and other performances. He was eventually replaced um, by, I don't think I'm even saying this right, Jizz Butt, <laughs> but he would go on to be in the band for the next three years. So because the band was taking this mix of rock and their hip-hop roots, the band had to fight hard for respect. The metal, hardcore rock fans had to be convinced of the Prodigy's influence, and hardcore techno and dance purists were not so sure where the Prodigy fit in all of this. But this was to change with the song Firestarter. Firestarter, the single, was released on March 18, 1996, some of the songwriting credits went to Kim Deal of The Breeders. The looped wah-wah guitar riff was sampled from the Breeder song S.O.S., so she is on the songwriting credits. Firestarter was also inspired by the Foo Fighters track Weenie Beanie for its screeching guitar sound. And the drums on this track are sampled from Devotion, the Voice of Paradise remix by Ten City. This song, Firestarter, is so pivotal for the band 
for a couple of reasons, but this was pivotal in part because this is one of the few Prodigy songs that Keith Flint would give his vocals to. Liam had commented that at the time of making the song, he was happy with it just being how it was instrumental. But Keith said, can I put some vocal on this? I kind of want to try singing over it. And Liam was like, what? What do you mean? (laughs) It's so, um, you know, Keith certainly was not a singer by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that's what made him so appealing because he was really embodying that punk and rock and roll lifestyle. He really did not give a shit about how he sounded. He just sang from the heart and that's what matters the most. But what was really interesting was at the time, Keith was obviously a dancer for the band. He was a hype person, right? But the press was starting to compare Keith and Leroy's dancing roles in the group to Bez from the Happy Mondays. And if you know about Bez from the Happy Mondays, Bez was just a dancer for the band. He didn't really do anything else for them except he was a great maraca player. Um, But that was really it. So it's funny that they were comparing Keith to Bez of the Happy Mondays. They're both totally different people. I understand the sentiment, but come on, you can't do that to poor Keith. Essentially, they were saying that they had no real relevance to the band, and that is where they're wrong. The lyrics for Firestarter came from Keith himself. He wrote the song, and he has gone on to say that the tune is very personal for him. It talks about his role in the prodigy and his ability to get the audience pumped, like to get them hyped. Like he's the adrenalizer, he is the fire starter. And so the tune is all about himself. The song itself is really pivotal for the band, but the music video was also really pivotal because that one was such an interesting story. I'm going to get into it right now. So the music video for Firestarter was filmed in an abandoned London underground tunnel in Aldwych. The music video was one of the keys to help propel the Prodigy's reach to the U.S. and international audience. It became ingrained in the people's minds, this music video. It was said that the first take of the video was Keith in a straitjacket and a fireball bouncing in the background. It had cost them about 100,000 pounds, but they were not happy with this, and so they binned it. So they blew a lot of their money away on this take, and they didn't have a lot left to use. So obviously, without having any video to promote the single now at this point, they called up Walter Stern, who had worked to shoot the videos for No Good, Poison, and Voodoo People. So he worked with them before. Because they spent most of the budget already, Um, They only had 20,000 pounds left to film this music video. So they ended up having to use black and white film as a means of saving money. This wasn't like a choice, like they had to use black and white film. One of the things that stands out in particular is Keith and his eclectic punk style. He adopted that kind of fashion sense of the punk thing with the reverse mohawk that he is known for and he would dye his hair. All these kind of crazy neon colors. Pink was one of his favorites that he would use. He would rim his eyes with eyeliner and the clothes that he started to wear really became a lot more alternative and a lot more punk in fashion. Very, very like Johnny Rotten Sid Vicious and that is what I love about Keith in, in that aspect. 
So this was a big shift for how he used to look. If you look at how he used to look before, he looked like your typical stoner person with the long hair. He didn't look like a punk at all. So this was kind of a, a changing point for him in a lot of ways. And this was the active rebellion against the rave culture as well. So in the music video, he's wearing the American flag sweater, which was a prominent feature in the video. And it came about in kind of just a thrown together nonchalant way, but it made a big impact. Keith was on the way to film the video, but he stopped at Camden Market to find something to wear. And he liked the contrast of the sweater having the stars and stripes and him and the prodigy being British, that it was a cool contrast, right? So he said he went to Camden Market. He saw the sweater. He's like, that's a cool contrast. It was only five pounds and he bought it. The Firestarter song was embroiled in controversy for its reference to arson. Like, I'm a firestarter, you know, I'm gonna burn shit down. The radios were like, arson, we can't have that. So they banned the song from the radio. They were not playing it. But despite this, it went to number one on the UK singles chart purely because of the hype of the band and the street cred of the band. Like, the people made that happen. It wasn't the radios. It wasn't the music critics. It was the people. It was us. It was the regular people that were help promoting the single, and it made it to number one because of that, which is really interesting. The U.S. before was genuinely not interested in getting the Prodigy's album sold over in the States. However, by the time that Firestarter was starting to make its rounds, interestingly enough, okay, an unlikely hero of sorts comes in and they wanted to invest in the band to propel them into the American spotlight. This is a really weird story, but it's true. So XL had an in with a person who got them with a meeting with Maverick Record Company, right? Maverick Recording Company is Madonna's label. That is her own independent label. She owned that. That was hers. And interestingly enough, like no one else wanted to take on the Prodigy and sell their music overseas. Madonna was the one to get them in the door over here. Weirdly enough, I know. It's weird, but it's true. Madonna herself came into some of these meetings with XL Recordings and with her company, Maverick, to strike a deal, and she really liked what the Prodigy was doing, and so she helped promote some of their music over in America. Really bizarre that that happened, but that's true. So she helped them put the Prodigy into America, so thanks, Madonna, for that one. So their third album, The Fat of the Land, was released on June 30th, 1997. This was the first Prodigy album to include contributions by Keith of which he gives vocals on four of the songs, and he co-wrote three songs. His contributions were to Breathe, Firestarter, Serial Thrilla, and Feel My Fire. This was also the first Prodigy record to have a new band logo, where they just left it as Prodigy with an ant silhouette. The title, The Fat of the Land, refers to an old English saying that's live off the fat of the land, meaning living well or being wealthy. And I think we use that too over here in America. But this album really focused a lot more on big beats and simplified melodies over kind of more of that rock style, but it's still infused in there for sure. 
fat of the land put them in the position of being the most internationally successful band in the dance genre. It went to number one on both the UK and US album charts. So they're doing something right with this one. This one really broke the charts 100%. But this wasn't where the controversy stopped for them. No siree. Their song, Smack My Bitch Up, started to get them in really deep controversy. People in the 90s were not happy with this song or with the accompanying music video, might I add. Okay, that's a whole other thing. So the National Organization for Women was starting to say that the songs were misogynistic, although the band says that the true interpretation of the song is doing anything intensely, like being on stage, going for extreme manic energy. So this wasn't saying that they were smacking women and that they were saying for people to do this. That's not what it was at all. And also, this was not them saying it. This was a sample. The Smack My Bitch Up is a sample of a hip-hop tune. It's just, it is what it is, right? So the sample was from Ultra Magnetic MC in their song, Give the Drummer Some. But what can you do? People were not happy at all. A quote by Liam on this is, That record was for the fans. Only brainless people get some stupid message out of it. I'm often misquoted. Some magazine said, Liam Howlett says his band are dangerous. What I said was, for this band to survive, it has to be dangerous for us. I wasn't saying we were dangerous because we're fire starters and we have spiky hair. So basically, he's saying that people are interpreting the song in a on-the-surface value and they're not really understanding that this is just a tune. But also, the Prodigy love to play with the media and this goes to show with their music video for this 100%. Liam also went on to say that it's probably the most pointless song that he's ever written, but it works as a live tune, and so you don't need any explanation on the lyrics. It either works or it doesn't, and for them, it works. So because of this immense backlash against the song and for the music video, which I'm going to talk about in a second, the song was limited on radio stations and on MTV for playing it only at nighttime hours. So the music video for the song has been banned on MTV. It did not take long for it to be banned. Um, the Prodigy considered the music video to be a joke on the British press because they knew it would be widely talked about. And you can't really find this anywhere on YouTube. I watched it though. I <laughs> I found it. It was interesting. I mean, it wasn't anything crazy necessarily. It was just a bit mind-bending. I don't know. I guess for the 90s, that was way too much for people. I mean, fair enough. I remember how it was back then. People were throwing their arms up about the smallest of things, I guess. So I guess it makes sense for it to be banned. But that just goes to show that they were having all this controversy, but in part, the controversy was making them more popular because they were getting talked about. And they didn't really care that their music was getting banned. They just did whatever they wanted to do. So in September 1997, the Prodigy performed Breathe at the MTV Video Music Awards, and they won the MTV Viewer's Choice Award of that year. The following year, on August 29th, the Prodigy and the Beastie Boys were on stage together at the Reading Festival. 
And unfortunately, the two of them had a disagreement over playing Smack My Bitch Up because the Beastie Boys wanted the song to be pulled from the set list as it could have been considered offensive to those that had suffered domestic abuse. This is what the Beastie Boys were saying, but the Prodigy were like, we're not having that, and they went on to the stage to play the song anyway. Maxim introduced the song by saying, they didn't want us to play this fucking tune, but the way things go, I do what the fuck I want. So there you go. Again, they don't care if the Beastie Boys are saying it. They don't care who says it. They just want to play their music and they want to be creative like that and have an outlet for it. So they don't care. In a turn of events, Smack My Bitch Up won two MTV awards in 1998. Isn't that crazy? One for Best Dance Video and one for Breakthrough Video. So here you go. In 1999, they released the Dirt Chamber Sessions Volume 1. This was a solo DJ mix album by Liam. This was originally produced for BBC Radio 1, the show called The Breeze Blocks, which featured electronic music. This album consisted of more than 48 songs, that's a lot, that Liam had remixed and produced himself. The bands that he remixed follow the likes of Run DMC, The Charlatans, The Chemical Brothers, Sugar Hill Gang, Jane's Addiction, The Beastie Boys, and more. So basically, this is just kind of like a DJ mixed album by Liam, and it's pretty interesting. Um, if you want to take a listen to it, that's what it's called, The Dirt Chamber Sessions Volume 1. This album was also released mainly so that bootleg copies of Liam's DJ sets for this radio show wouldn't be made and sold as bootleg copies, of course. There was also a remix of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club bands that he did on the radio show that he wanted to put on the album, but it had to be removed because they didn't get permission to put it on the album. So that would have been nice to hear that one. I wonder how that one would have sounded. So, in June of 1999, guitarist Jizz Butt left the group, and Leroy also left the band at this point in time, following a split from his girlfriend, Sarah Cox, who was a BBC Radio 1 presenter. So, it was at this point, just the three of them now, Maxim, Liam, and Keith, but the band would remain quiet until 2002, where they released the single, Baby's Got a Temper, which was really negatively received by the critics. It just, whew, it was not a good tune at all. The song was originally made by Keith in his side project band called Flint. The song was completely reworked by Liam, only leaving a few of the original lyrics and melody left. If I'm not mistaken, from my recollection of hearing this song, it sounds to me like Liam kind of remixed or sampled part of Firestarter for the melody of this one. I could be mistaken, but I think that's what I remember. But so anyway, Liam tried really, really hard to make this song palatable, <laughs> I guess, if you will, but the single just didn't pan out at all. Um, this song actually gained a lot of controversy for its lyrics about the drug Rohypnol, which is commonly known as the date rape drug. So again, they're just getting embroiled in all this controversy. The music video was also controversial for many reasons. 
The full version of the video was aired on MTV2 in 2002 as part of their late night special of a countdown showing the most controversial music videos to ever play on MTV. And they have, <laughs> they have quite a few music videos that were deemed way too controversial. So there's just another one that's going right into that list. So now we're going on to their fourth album, Always Outnumbered, Never Outgunned. The band actually started creating material for the album in September of 98, but this was put on hold when Jizz and Leroy left the band. I think I... Am I saying that right? Is it Giz or Jizz? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> when those two left the band, right? So they put it on hold for a while and they picked up recording the album again back in 2002 and it was eventually finished in 2004. Baby's Got a Temper was actually intended to be released as a single for the album, but when they saw how bad the song was received, they scrapped that plan entirely and they left it out of the album. And funny enough, Liam has since disowned that song. He will not recognize it. He will just be like, what's that song? I've never heard of that song in my life. So again, Liam mostly produced this album by himself as with the other albums. This definitely takes it back to their first album experience in which he did it all by himself. It's, it's kind of, I don't want to say rare, but it's not the typical that Liam would invite other producers on to help him. He mostly does it by himself, but he's not adverse to asking for help. This is kind of one where he does kind of ask for help a little bit. Um, he used a program called Propellerhead Reason on his Mac laptop. Although, like I had mentioned, they started to record this album back in 1998, Liam disliked that sound, so he scrapped most of what they had already worked on for the album. He took a break from this album in the year 2000, he did a bit of this and that, and he returned back to Essex in 2001 to get back to recording this album. But after six songs were written, he brought on producer Neil McClellan, to help him with this and he moved into a house after four months and then he returned to his original studio. It was just kind of, it was an interesting experience for this album for him. It was kind of a lot and I have a quote from Liam on the process which I thought was quite interesting. My studio was crammed with equipment but I ended up feeling I was being overcome by it all. It was just too much. I used to go to bed every night thinking, tomorrow I'm going to write the tune, tomorrow is going to be the day. But nothing ever happened. Eventually, Neil McClellan pointed out that we'd been in the studio for four months without having anything to show for it. Nat, who was his wife and All Saints member, Nat was doing her own record, so we weren't spending a lot of time together, but there were always dogs to stroke and videos to watch and gardens to walk around, so it didn't ever feel like I was at work. I was too laid back. Neil said we had to get out, get back to London. I knew I physically couldn't sit in my room anymore, and for the first time in my life, I listened to someone else and realized I actually needed help. It wasn't that I needed help with the writing, just that I needed help finding the right headspace to get into the right frame of mind. I wanted to write a good album, one I was happy with. But to do that, I knew I'd have to jerk myself out of the situation I was in and start again. 
this is where he buys his laptop and he buys the copy of Propellerhead Reason. And this is where he starts to give the album another go. He also bought a Thermionic Culture Phoenix Valve Compressor and a Culture Vulture Distortion Unit, a Korg Micro Keyboard, a Manly Laboratories Valve EQ, and a 1970s Korg MS-20 Analog Keyboard. So how it went was he wrote the songs in his bed and then created them using this equipment. After he was finished with the songs, he passed the songs over to be mastered on Pro Tools. So he had a lot of help on this one. And honestly, this album is, it's, it's a stellar album and it works. Guest musicians on the album features Juliette Lewis, who is an actress. Liam and Noel Gallagher are on here. Cool Keith of Ultra Magnetic MCs are on here. American rapper Twist is on here. Princess Superstar and a lot more is on this album. Liam stated that this album is about reminding people what the prodigy was always about, the beats and the music. He also said that his intention was to use vocals mostly as an extension of the sound rather than it being the main focal point as it was before with the case of the Fat of the Land album where the vocals were like the main thing of the song, like Firestarter, you know what I mean? The vocals take the center stage. But on this album, he wanted the vocals to be like its own instrument and kind of just an extension of the song, which I like and I can really hear that in the album a lot. And I kind of appreciate that that's where he deviated from on this album in particular. The opening track and one of their most popular singles, Spitfire, was named after a World War II plane of the same name. I didn't know that before, um, but that's interesting. Also, what I didn't know, Juliette Lewis does the vocals on the song. That is Juliette Lewis singing on Spitfire. The song Spitfire was also featured in the 2005 horror movie House of Wax. So the song Shoot Down features Liam and Noel Gallagher with Liam on lead vocals. And what's kind of cool here that I just wanted to interject for a minute was that the two Liams, Liam Howlett and Liam Gallagher, have been close friends for many, many, many years. And they have a connection because Liam Howlett's wife, Natalie Appleton, has a twin sister, Nicole Appleton, that dated Liam Gallagher and was married to him for six years. But they just have that cool kind of thing together because they dated the two sisters, and I thought that was really interesting. So yeah, they always have loved each other from the start. So getting back to the album, the lead single, Girls, was released on August 30th, 2004, and it went to number 19 in the UK singles chart. The song Hot Ride was released on November 1st, and Spitfire was released on April 4th, 2005. And Always Outnumbered, Never Outgun was released on August 23rd, 2004 in the UK and on September 14th, 2004 in the US. The album totally topped the charts for the first week. And The Prodigy went on to tour the album for the next two years. Like this was a extremely successful album and a very successful tour for them. The album, interestingly enough, got mixed reviews from critics despite it being successful, but the fans really, really enjoyed this album a lot. And I agree, it's one of their best albums. It's so, so good. I, I love it a lot, honestly. It's great. 
So in 2005, they released a compilation album called Their Law, the singles 1990 through 2005, which created a single containing new remixes of the songs Out of Space and Voodoo People. And I have that album on vinyl. It is so good to hear it on vinyl. It's such a good compilation album. I don't typically go for compilation albums necessarily. I like to have the albums, but this one, I have to say, if you're looking for a compilation album, this is it. This is the one to get. In the summer of 2008, their first two albums were re-released and expanded in deluxe editions, as well as being remastered. These new releases had live tracks, rare tracks, and remixed tracks, just kind of a bunch of different stuff on there as you would with these expanded editions. There's just a lot of cool tracks on here. Liam stated at the time that he wasn't really keen on the idea of these re-releases and the compilation album at first because it was old material, he was over it, like he wanted to create new stuff and he didn't want to just keep pumping out the old stuff. But he got into the idea of expanding and getting creative with it. But he said that he was ready to work on new material for another album, which comes in as Invaders Must Die. So, on November 5th, 2008, it was announced that the title for their new album was Invaders Must Die, and that it would be released on their new record label called Take Me to the Hospital, which is their own record label. It was released on February 23rd, 2009 in the UK, and March the 3rd, 2009 in the US. And this was the first Prodigy album since The Fat of the Land that featured all three Prodigy members, Liam, Keith, and Maxim. Because again, Always Outnumbered, Never Outgunned was predominantly made by Liam, and Keith and Maxim had contributions on Invaders Must Die, so this is another one where the three of them are coming together. The album featured Dave Grohl on drums for Run With The Wolves and the hit songs Omen and Invaders Must Die were co-produced by James Rushent, who is a member of the UK dance punk band Does It Offend You Yeah. What's interesting with this tie with Dave Grohl actually comes in part like this. Liam would actually go on to remix one of the Foo Fighters tunes in 2011 called White Limo, but... What I thought was so interesting was, since the very beginning, Dave has always been a massive fan of The Prodigy since their early days. And I could probably imagine that this stemmed from the fact that they sampled two Nirvana songs and that, of course, they needed to get their permission to use the samples in their music. And so I think that's where it stemmed from. And probably, what year was that? 1994? So Dave was a big fan and he's always been a fan. Interestingly enough, I actually found a little clip of an interview from 1997 where Dave talks about his love of the Prodigy, like he is such a fanboy and he loves them. So that's really cool that there's this kind of camaraderie with these people that I love, like Liam Gallagher and Dave Grohl and Nirvana. And they come hand in hand with the prodigy. It's just a nice little, it's just a nice like full circle moment, I suppose. So the group said that this album would go back to their old school but cutting edge roots, which I could totally agree with that. The sound is very reminiscent of their older stuff. The album charted at number one in the UK and it went two times platinum, selling over 600,000 copies. Um, so again, like I mentioned, Keith and Maxim were 
contributors to the album, Keith did vocals on the tracks Omen, Colors, Take Me to the Hospital, Run With the Wolves, and Worlds on Fire. To coincide with the release of the album, the band embarked on a nine-day UK arena tour, which was very successful. The response to this album, also interestingly enough, was mixed by the critics. But again, it was well-received by the fans, and I have to say this again, critics most of the time don't know what the hell they're talking about. I have to say it, and I have to be honest, they kind of don't know what they're talking about. So the fans, they welcomed this album in a positive light alongside Always Outnumbered, and you have to give it to the fans. (laughs) The fans really know what's up with this one. So the tunes Warrior Dance and Take Me to the Hospital were singles that released in May and August in 2009, and Warrior's Dance landed at number 9 in the UK singles chart. Liam described this album as more of a celebration. We'd come back together and we were like, yeah, we're here. We're really buzzing. So it's really nice to see that they were really, really excited about this album. So now we're skipping forward a little bit in time to 2010 on November the 16th. The band announced their American tour with Linkin Park. And after these shows, they said that they were going to go into the studio to record their next album, which is called The Day Is My Enemy, but they had a little bit of ping-ponging back and forth on what the album was going to be called. That wasn't the first iteration of the title. In May 2011, the band released their first live album and concert film documentary called Worlds on Fire. The film was screened to select cinemas in Europe for one night, and so that was something that was pivotal for them too. I mean, Most bands, I think, at this point would have probably released a live album or some kind of live documentary DVD or something at this point, but they were a bit, I mean, I don't know if you want to call it late to the game, but again, this just wasn't something that they were interested in doing before, but now at this point, yeah, now they were starting to do all the typical stuff. So Liam confirmed that the album would not be dubstep, but that it's going to feel fresh but darker and Yes, this album for sure is kind of dark, but I love it. So in 2012, they initially announced that the working title for this album was called How to Steal a Jet Fighter. Another working title that they had rolling around in their brain was Rebel Radio. But Liam said that he had a hard time imagining Rebel Radio as the title So they scrapped that, and instead, they used Rebel Radio as a song title for the next album. So there you go. I'm sorry, not the next album, but on this album. So the next couple of tracks here that they were to debut is The Day and Rockweiler. They debuted these at two of their shows in 2012 and 2013. And then the following year, August 2014, They signed with American record label 360, returning to Warner Music for the first time since 2004. So bye-bye, Madonna. We need you no more. In January 2015, it was announced that the new album would be released in March and that the new title for the album was officially The Day Is My Enemy. Also, in January on the 15th, they released the song Nasty as their lead single, Liam says that the word violent is the word that keeps coming into his mind when he's trying to describe the sound of this new album. 
And yes, I absolutely would agree with that. But again, it's really, really tastefully done. The recording process, as you can see, started way back in November of 2010, and it finished in December of 2014. It took a long time for them to establish the sound that they were going for, and they went back and forth, obviously, a lot, trying to really make sure that they nailed down the sound of this album perfectly. The album became more like a joint effort with Keith and Maxim working hand-in-hand -hand with Liam, even though this created a bit of tension between them, of course, as it would. Liam, again, is usually the one doing everything, but Keith and Maxim had more of a hands-on with this album, so of course it created some tension in the studio, but Keith said this quote here. Four years ago, we sat down and talked about where the next album was going to go, and we knew we had to bust out the most band album we could create, and band is in quotes, because obviously, Liam does everything, so how do you make a band album? You bring Keith and Maxim onto this to have more of a hands-on feel with this. And The Day Is My Enemy was released on March 30th, 2015, and it went to number one in the UK album charts and number two in the US dance electronic albums charts. This was 100% well-received by both fans and critics. Liam recollects that the title track, The Day Is My Enemy, was actually the last song to be recorded for the album. He said that the idea for the track came from his friend, who had shown Liam a guitar riff that he had just made one day. And upon hearing this, Liam suddenly got the idea for the track and he asked his friend if he could use the riff for the song. Also on the album, the song Ibiza was a reference to superstar DJ culture. Liam had this to say about the song. We did a gig in Ibiza, and I'm not a great fan of the place, but it isn't an attack on the island, it's an attack on these mindless fucking jokers that arrive in their Learjets, pull a USB stick out of their pockets, plug it in, and wave their hands in the air to the pre-programmed mix. So, of course he's talking down to these people that literally put a USB stick in there and let it all play, and they do nothing, they just stand there. If you see Liam DJing, he is like all in it, he's all on the mixing, he's all on the DJ decks, and he's doing his thing, he's all involved in it. So he's looking down almost at this kind of fake DJ persona, if you will. So on April the 3rd, 2015, the band promoted the album in a really interesting way. They projected the album cover onto landmarks in London as a means of guerrilla marketing, which basically is a marketing technique that employs a surprise and unconventional means of promotion, like this. So the album cover was projected onto the Battersea Power Station, the London Underground Station at Shoreditch High Street, and on the Houses of Parliament, you know, like Big Ben and all that. <laughs> so they were saying something with that, and um, I quite like that. I like when bands kind of do something a bit different to promote an album. That's really cool. And they went on a massive tour of the album in 2015, so they were doing really well with this album. They were really giving it all that they had, and for the most part, between that time and 2016, they were just kind of touring. So now we're getting into their last album that they've put out called No Tourists. 
It was recorded between 2017 and 2018, and it was released on November the 2nd, 2018. So with this album originally, Liam had the idea of just creating an EP. He didn't want to do albums anymore. I've seen a lot of interviews with this same sentiment that he was done with albums. He thought doing albums just was not the thing anymore. He wanted to just do EPs. So it's, it makes sense to me that this album would just would have been an EP. And a song, Fight Fire with Fire, was the first proposed song on the EP. But once he created that song, the ball was rolling to create more material for a full-length album. So at that point, the idea of an EP was dismissed after Liam saw that the songwriting sessions created enough material at a faster pace compared to the other Prodigy albums. And so this gave him a lot of influence to just go ahead and create a full-length album instead. Liam thought that No Taurus displayed the same amount of aggression as the other albums, but just in a slightly different way. He also stated that this album was definitely a band album, even though he mostly was the one that contributed to the making of it. He considers it a band album. So that's really, that's really cool. Liam also made the conscious effort on this album to create and invoke a new environment for the writing process, such as he avoided socializing with friends, he avoided drinking alcohol, and he never really slept. And so when you mix all of these reclusive things together, he wanted to just push his body to the limit and see what he was physically capable of doing. He was all about the method, the method to the madness, and it worked. When the album was finished, he said that making it was the most intense studio time I've ever had. So the album's cover and the title was released on the Prodigy's Instagram. That's run by Liam, actually. He runs the Prodigy Instagram. So this was released on July 19th, 2018, and he stated that the title was not a reference to immigration and it had no political message. He stated that it was a reference to escapism. That's what it was about. He said, don't be a tourist. There is always more danger and excitement to be found if you stray from the set path. What I thought was really cool about this album cover, if you haven't noticed it before, was the image shows a double-decker bus on Route 7 and the destination on the bus says the Four Aces Club in Dalton Hackney. And this is a direct reference to the band's first ever live performance at the Four Aces Club in Dalton in 1990, which I talked about eons ago at the beginning of this episode. And so it comes back around full circle, which I really love. The first single, Needs Someone, was released also on July 19th on BBC Radio 1. The music video was released soon after, and it was filmed in Manila. Ooh, different. On October 24th, 2018, a secret listening party was held where fans that were invited to the show could hear the album in full before it was released to the public. So that's, again, another cool, different way of promoting the album. And it was officially released on November the 2nd, 2018, and it went to number one on the UK album charts. The band did have plans for a massive world tour for the album later that year, but that was swiftly cut short because of poor Keith Flint's passing. So Keith was unfortunately found passed away 
and his Essex home on March 4th, 2019. A little bit of backstory on Keith was he was married to Japanese DJ Mayumi Kai since 2006, but the two had subsequently separated prior to his death. Allegedly, he put his house up for sale following the split, and I suppose it could be noted that he was devastated about the split and that he wanted her back. That's all kind of speculation. We don't really know, but that I think is what people are alleging could be a factor in this. Um, other factors could be at play here, but I, you know, I don't want to really go too much into speculation because we don't know, you know, we don't know how it led to this, but we know that he was found dead. And according to the official coroner's report, the cause of death was suicide by hanging. And that is extremely traumatic. Weirdly enough, on researching his death, Johnny Rotten had a really strange interview with TMZ, I believe it was TMZ, talking about Keith Flynn's death, and he looked and sounded really strange, not normal at all. But he was taken aback by this for sure. Everyone was. We all we all were shocked and saddened by this news. And of course, Liam and the rest of the Prodigy were all heartbroken. Liam took to the Prodigy Instagram to make a post that confirmed Keith's death was in fact a suicide. And he said that he was shocked, shell-shocked actually, angry, confused, and heartbroken. So, of course, the Prodigy canceled all of the tours that they had for this No Taurus album, and they didn't do anything. Um, their website went black, so they took some time off for sure. There is a funeral held for Keith where fans could gather along the streets to pay their respects on March 29th, 2019. And a private ceremony for friends and family was held at St. Mary's Church in Bocking near Braintree in Essex. Of course, his bandmates showed up to the funeral. There's actually footage of this um, kind of funeral procession on YouTube. A lot of people, obviously, from the public had gone to pay their respects. So a lot of it is on YouTube. And um, what's interesting, what I thought was interesting anyway, and very much so like Keith, was as they were walking to the church and they were hoisting his coffin up and they were all walking to the church, the song Aerials by System of a Down was playing. And I thought that was really fitting for Keith. Keith was a brilliant person. He was a great man. He was very talented. Um, he had his demons for sure um, all throughout his life, but he was a beautiful soul, very intelligent. He was a great person and he'll be forever missed. I just kind of wanted to put this little nice fact in there that, you know, he was a really, really sweet guy. One nice fact that I found was that he loved animals so much. He really cared for animals and he was an avid bird watcher. That was kind of something that he liked to do in his free time. In his Essex mansion, he actually built a pond in his garden to attract the birds so that he could bird watch. And at his house, he also had several dogs and horses. He was just a really sensitive, really sweet, nice guy, and he will be forever missed. So as of now, that is where the prodigy kind of caps off. But in terms of present day, there are a few announcements. There aren't too many. One of the more prominent announcements was made 
on February 10th of this year, where Liam announced on the Prodigy Instagram that a documentary of the Prodigy was in the works. Um, I thought I would just read the caption that he put on there because I think it speaks for itself. So he goes on to say, After the devastating passing of our brother Keith in 2019, the time feels right for us to tell the story of our band, all of it, the whole nine. It's a story of the chaotic and troubled journey of our gang, our band, the people's band, the prodigy, or simply a story of brothers on a mission to make noise, to ignite the people's souls and blow up sound systems worldwide. That's fucking what. This film will be made with the same integrity that our music is. Uncompromising, raw, and honest. This one's for Keith. Um, and apparently the film is going to be produced by Pulse Films and longtime Prodigy collaborator Paul Dugdale. There hasn't been anything since. I don't really know what's going on with that, but that is official news that that is going to be made. I'm going to be really excited when that one comes out. I will be definitely looking out for that one. So another kind of big news that has come out recently as of May 18th of this year is the fact that the Prodigy are making music again. And could this signal a new album coming out possibly next year or in the next few years i think possibly so liam on the prodigy instagram shared a clip of a new song and it was hinting at new material i mean i heard it it was a great beat and i'm really excited from what i have gathered apparently at least from what i can recall that liam was working on some new material around the time of Keith's death for an album or like an EP kind of thing. But obviously since his passing, he put that on hold. That's, I, I mean, I think that's what I remember reading in an article. But this at least confirms that yes, he is making new music since Keith's passing. And when we'll hear any news about it, we don't know. And then the more recent thing that's come out on September the 3rd of this year, the Prodigy released a really rare 300 copy white label 12 inch remix of Breathe featuring RZA and it sold out pretty much immediately. So if you were lucky to grab one of the 300 copies of this white label single remix, then good for you. But that's pretty much basically the story of the prodigy. That's all that's come out in present day. That's all she wrote. I could sit here for hours and talk about every little detail about them, but I chose to put in the most important information. If you really want to dive deep into every single sample that he has ever put in the prodigy, there is that information available on YouTube. And if you are curious about anything else in particular, Obviously, of course, do your own research and take it upon yourself to learn and to acquire that knowledge. I mean, I love that this is what I do. Every single week I come on here and I tell the story of these bands and these people and we keep the story going. I mean, The Prodigy has really meant a lot to me and I never expected that because I never knew about them until last year when I first heard of them. So I'm going to close it out there. This has 1000% this is the longest episode I will ever do. No doubt about it. I can't even believe it's been this long, but I'm just going to end it by just reiterating 
how big the prodigy are. They have been credited as the pioneers of the big beat genre, which thanks to them, it achieved mainstream popularity in the 90s in particular, but also they're still going. They're still making music. They're still doing their thing. And we have to give it up to Liam Howlett 100%. Of course, Maxim Reality is an awesome MC and a great collaborator. Keith, of course, an amazing dancer, amazing creative mind, so pivotal with a lot of those singles that he put the vocals onto. We have to give it up to the prodigy himself, Liam Howlett, 100%. They all have a role to play, but he really was and is the prodigy kid. So I'm going to leave it there. I hope you guys have learned something new that you hadn't have learned before. My throat is dead. It's shredded right now. So I'm going to go chill out and I hope you guys have a great day. I will see you guys next week for a new episode of On The Mix. Talk to you guys later. Bye guys. <laughs>